You're listening to the Grace Church Podcast, a weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you biblical guidance to life's most important issues. We want to thank you for joining us for this week's message. We pray you find strength and encouragement as we learn from God's truth together. For more information, go to visitgracechurch.com. Good morning. Guys, we're in a series right now. Um, Our our series uh, is about a topic I think that everybody could agree on. It's hard to get everybody to agree on something. But I think you would agree, like, if you're joining us online somewhere in this world, uh, I bet you agree with this next comment. If you're at our Olathe campus, uh, I'll bet you agree. If you're at our Overland Park campus in the venue uh, right now, the auditorium, I bet you agree as well. Sometimes God doesn't make sense. I think everybody can agree on that concept. Sometimes God doesn't make sense. Maybe you're a person here who uh, the whole concept of God doesn't make sense. So it's kind of weird to you. You're in a church. You're exploring faith. You don't even believe in God. You're trying to figure this out. And we think it's awesome that you found a place. We want to be that type of place that you can come to, explore faith, trying to figure out because God hasn't made a lot of sense to you. Uh, for those of us who do follow God, sometimes it's what God does that doesn't make sense. Or what he doesn't do. We find ourselves asking, my God, how could you let that happen? Sometimes God doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's something in the Bible. Like you'll read it, something God writes or says doesn't make sense. You, we're reading the Bible like, I don't understand what that says. That doesn't make sense. Or for those things you do understand. Like, well, that doesn't make sense. I understand it, but why would he say that? And that's actually our topic today. We're talking about something that God says that just frankly doesn't make sense. And so our topic this week is on when love doesn't make sense. When love doesn't make sense. Now, uh, I think for all of us, the concept, for most of us, love does make sense in general. God wired us for love. We want to be loved. That makes sense to us. But I'm saying that the kind of love that God calls us to, the love you see in the Bible, like that kind of love, that love doesn't make sense And so here's the question I've been asking myself recently. It's this question. Do you love your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you care for your neighbor in a way that doesn't make sense? Do you show kindness to your neighbor in a way that doesn't make sense? Do you, are you loving your neighbor as if it's yourself in a way that doesn't make sense? That's our topic today. We're going to be in Leviticus 19, then Luke 10. So our, if you're going to open a Bible or our message notes, Leviticus 19. Our ushers in all of our locations have Bibles, and you can borrow one or keep it if you raise your hand. Leviticus chapter 19. We'll be in verse 18. Leviticus 19, 18 is where we find the first time the word, the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself is found. Leviticus 19, 18 is first recorded by Moses describing what it looks like. To actually follow God, if you follow God, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18 is later quoted by Jesus as part two of the great commandment. And it's about a love that doesn't make sense. It says this, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. That, my friends, doesn't make sense. If you've ever been hurt by somebody... Or burned by somebody. Don't you want one or both of those? I mean, you want to get vengeance. 
or hold a grudge. Like, that's what you want. That makes sense. Vengeance is holding a grudge. To not take vengeance, to not hold a grudge, doesn't make sense. He goes on. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God says you do this because I am the Lord. This is who I am. This is my nature. And so I spent a lot of time recently asking myself that question in different ways. Here's another version of that question. Do you love blank as yourself? Insert a group of people. Put the group of people you have a hard time loving. Do you love that group or that guy, that girl, as yourself? Do you love your mom as yourself? Do you love your dad as if it's you or the recipient? Do you love your brother as yourself, your sister as yourself? Do you love your teacher as yourself in a way that doesn't make sense? Do you love your roommate as yourself? Do you love your boss as yourself? Do you love that frustrating friend as yourself in a way that doesn't make sense? Do you love your wife as if it's yourself? Do you love your husband as if it's yourself? Do you love your son as yourself, your daughter as yourself? Do you love complete strangers as yourself? Do you love your enemies as yourself in a way that doesn't make sense? Today we're talking about when love doesn't make sense. And we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to think about our lives. If you just be aware of the promptings of the Spirit, the Spirit kind of those thoughts that hit your brain, you know, God can place those thoughts as well. Just listen for the whisper of God today. Let's go ahead and pray. God, help us to understand what it means to to love our neighbor as ourself. This is a love that certainly doesn't make sense. Um, And yet, it's part of the great commandment. It's part two. Loving our neighbor as ourself. Help us, God, to think about our lives, to forget the past. I mean, look at the past, but then forget it. And to go forward and do life differently, loving people in ways that just doesn't make sense. We pray if anybody here is far from God, if they're part of that team of people exploring faith and, and God hasn't made sense, Jesus hasn't made sense, we pray your spirit would help God to make sense to them and the cross to make sense to them and they would give their life to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in Luke chapter 10, we actually could turn there, Luke 10, we get to listen in on a 2,000-year-old question-answer Bible study with Jesus. Like, how cool is that? And Jesus is teaching as a Jewish rabbi. Jewish rabbis always sat down when they taught. So he's seated teaching, and then other people are seated around him. And a lawyer stands up. A lawyer is a religious lawyer, someone who is an expert in the first five books of Moses, called the Law of Moses. And those rabbis, traditionally they know that there are 613 commandments found in the first five books of Moses, 613. And so the lawyer is asking, hey, which one of these 613 commandments do you think is important? And he asks two questions. Both questions he asks uh, all kind of surround this concept of a love that doesn't make sense. And so here's the first question that the religious lawyer asked Jesus. He asked, number one, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Hey, what, what do we have to do? 
to inherit eternal life? That, my friends, is an awesome question. That's a question that's the most important question of life. You have to answer that question. Yeah, what do you do to inherit eternal life? It's the right question. Now, the lawyer's asking it with the wrong motive. And he has the wrong motive because he's suspicious of Jesus. I want to give you the backstory of where we are in Luke chapter 10. You read through the Gospel of Luke, you can see Jesus growing, expanding ministry. He is multiplying small groups. In Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus start a discipleship group. He personally invites 12 guys to form a men's group. He begins mentoring them. He calls them apostles. And his capacity multiplies from one to 13. Then when you read in Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus send out the 12, two by two, six teams of two, sent out to start six new small groups. They recruit 70 other guys for those six groups. His capacity increases from 13 to 83. In Luke chapter 10, which is our chapter, what just happened? Jesus sent out the 70 Two by two. They're going to start 35 or 36 brand new small groups, brand new men's groups. They now have the capacity to reach over 500 men. Think about that. In just three hops, three generations, from one to 13 to 83 to over 500 men. His influence is multiplying, multiplying small groups. That, my friends, is what we hope all of our grace groups do. You have a season of discipleship, of growth. Then you multiply to expand, to reach more disciples. This is what Jesus did. Now, in this context, this lawyer sees this expanding ministry, and he's suspicious. He asks this question in Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Wrong motive. We know the wrong motive because the word tested there. The word tested in Greek appears three other times in the New Testament. Every time, it's bad. Every time, it's bad. You find it elsewhere. Here's the three other ways. Matthew 4, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Luke 4, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, nor let us tempt Christ. Not good. This is not good. He stands up. He's asking a question, the right question, but he's trying to tempt him now. Not good. And Jesus, this is a great way to answer a Bible question with, uh, well, what do you think it means? Like, that's his, that's his answer. He gets two questions, by the way. He says this, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law, what is your reading of it? Jesus asked two questions. He answers the question with a question. And he says, okay, now, uh, what does the Bible say on your topic? Like, what's it say? Where does the Bible talk about your topic? And if you can find those verses, what is your reading of those verses? This shows you insight into how Jesus thinks man, women should live. Like we should live this way. We're calling the series When God Doesn't Make Sense. We should call it When People Don't Make Sense. That's what we should call it. Because to Jesus, it doesn't make sense when you have a life question, you wouldn't consult the Bible. You wouldn't ask those two questions. Where in the Bible can I find verses on this topic? And you have an ally now that people never had in the history of the world. You can do an internet search. Any internet search, just literally type in this phrase. Bible verses on forgiveness. Bible verses on finances. Bible verses on uh, children. Bible verses on dating. You'll get 50 verses like that. You can answer question one. Then you got to answer question two. 
What is your reading of those verses? So Jesus answers, asks two questions. This guy responds and he gives a great answer. He picks out two of the 613 commandments in the, the Mosaic law, Moses' law, verse 27. So he answered and said, well, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And your neighbor as yourself. There's our Leviticus 19 verse. He plucks off two of the 613 Old Testament commandments in the first five books of Moses. And, and it's, by the way, those both regarding love, they're both love that doesn't make sense. I mean, tell me, does it make sense to you? Does everybody naturally do this? Where you look at your kids and say, you're not as important to me as God is. You look at, that's what my wife and I do. We tell our kids, you're not as important as God is to us. You're third. It's God, spouse, kids. And then all y'alls come after that. I believe that's a technical southern term for that, all y'alls. I mean, does it make sense you'd do that? Like, some of you, you're dying inside. You'd never do that. It's because this is a love that doesn't make sense. How about loving your neighbor? Do you actually love your neighbor thinking to yourself, if I was the recipient of my actions right now, I would really sense love. I love my neighbor as if it's me, like I'm looking in the mirror. And so what did Jesus say? The great way to do Bible study, shortest Bible study in the world. What do you think it means? Good answer. He says, verse 28, and he said to him, well, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live perfect. That's shortest Bible study ever. So I've been trying to understand what it means. So love your neighbor. That's the first part of it. As yourself is the second part. I've been trying to think, what does this commandment even mean? And so I've been thinking about this version of the question, part two, as yourself. What does it mean to love as yourself? Like to love someone as if you're loving yourself. What does it even mean? I'll ask you the question, do you love yourself? Do you love yourself? Now, some of us are just too good at this. People meet you and like, a dude loves himself. Seriously, that's too much. You have too much self-love, too much ego, too much arrogance. That's too much self-love. Others of us, we're not good at all at this. Because frankly, we don't like ourselves. We don't, we don't like ourselves as we are. We don't accept ourselves. Um, we wish we were different. We constantly criticize ourselves. We don't offer ourselves love. But how can you ever love your neighbor as yourself until you get a healthy version of loving yourself. So I'm trying to figure out what does this mean to love your neighbor as yourself, to love yourself. I did an experiment with my phone on Thursday. And I said, well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to send some messages of love to me from Tim to Tim. I'm going to love myself. Four pictures I sent myself. Kind of weird getting those, by the way. I sent myself this bitmoji. I, I wrote, thinking about you. And I thought, that was nice. That's nice Tim's thinking about me. I like to be thought about. Then I wrote another one, me and you forever. And I thought, wow, that's commitment. Now we're committed to carve that into a tree. That's, that's loving myself, man. So I wrote, I love you. And I thought, man, it's so nice to Tim to say that. So I wrote back the only way I could, I love you too. Okay, so loving your neighbor as you love yourself that was a bit too weird for me. So I took all those bitmojis and I sent them all to my wife. One, two, three, four. She writes back, thank you. And I said, honey, I was cleansing my mental palate. That was just too weird. 
But my question is, stands though, do you love yourself? How do you view yourself? When you think about yourself, what do you think about yourself? How do you talk to yourself in your brain? Like your self-talk. How do you talk to yourself? Is your self-talk in your brain encouraging to yourself? The kind of thing that God would say, yes, I agree with that. That's, that's how I would speak to you. I would talk to you. Or is your self-talk demeaning to yourself? Do you constantly criticize yourself? Do you run yourself down? So I was convicted about this a number of years ago because I was guilty of constant negative self-talk. And I would call myself things like, idiot, you moron, and far worse. Until one day, I felt like God just prompted me and said, hey, don't talk to my son that way. You can't talk to my, that's my son you're talking about. That's not who he is. And it hit me. Would I as a parent ever let anybody talk to Jacob that way or Karina that way? or Matt? That's my son and my daughters. You don't talk to my son and daughters that way. That demeaning, critical talk, that is not who they are. I see who they are as their dad. It hit me. I was running down, inadvertently, one of God's children. And God said, hey, you need to stop talking to my son that way. That is not who he is. How do you talk to yourself? You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you accept yourself just as you are? Do you give yourself grace? Second chances. Do you give yourself the benefit of the doubt? Do you believe you're worthy of love? Guys, how can you ever have a healthy view of of loving your neighbor until you deal with a healthy version of loving yourself, love your neighbor, not too high, not too low? As God sees you. We're called to Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't make sense. So the religious lawyer asked a follow-up question. Because the lawyers are good at parsing words. So he's like, okay, yeah, who is my neighbor? Number two. Who is my neighbor? And that's a great question. Love your neighbor as yourself. So who is your neighbor? When you hear the word neighbor, like right now, love your neighbor who do you picture in your mind right now? Just think about who you're picturing. Love your neighbor. If you live in an apartment complex, you likely picture the people that live in the apartments next to you, the people who apparently have elephants in their apartment upstairs, they're so loud, and the people who live below you. Um, If you live in a house, you probably are thinking of people who live across the street from you, your neighbor next door to you and behind you. Those are your neighbors you're thinking of, but really? Is that who Jesus was picturing when he said, love your neighbor? as yourself so to understand what jesus is about to say he's going to answer this guy's question this time with a story and then a question a story and a question and the story is going to be about an 18 mile hike downhill out of the mountains and the story of a samaritan who was actually good who a jewish man could never think any samaritan was actually good i'll give you some context here so we know what's going on Here's a picture of the Holy Land in Jesus' day. There's the road at the bottom. That blue line at the bottom is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's 18 miles long, but it's also straight downhill. You descend two-thirds of a mile, uh, going from the mountains to below sea level. It was an area, notice the green around there, that Judea, that green is Judea. It was all controlled by the Jewish people, but it was dangerous. It was known for its thieves. Here, the next picture shows what it looked like. I want you to memorize this photo This is exactly what the path from Jerusalem to Jericho looks like 
for 18 miles. Can you picture that? I mean, it's descending two-thirds of a mile, 18 mile long, dry, dusty, and dangerous. There's so many places of caves, and you could grab somebody and get away. Lots of places to hide. That was the path. I want you to picture and remember. Now go back to the picture of the Holy Land in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there were one million Samaritans living in that red zone called Samaria. And the Jews lived in the southern green zone called Judea, the northern green zone called Galilee. And look at that, look at that map. The Jews would walk miles out of their way to go around the red zone, the one million Samaritans. Why? They were less than human. They were demon-possessed. They avoided even walking any contact with Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. By the way, there are Samaritans today of the one million in Jesus' day. Here's a picture of them today. They're going extinct. There's 800 Samaritans left after one million in Jesus' day. There's only four families of Samaritans left. They only live in two cities in the Holy Land. And by the way, they're an unreached people group. They need missionaries to go there. Not a hundred. They need like two to four people to move there to those two cities in the Holy Land with these four families that are going extinct and to share Jesus. They're an unreached people group today. Now, now when Jesus brings up the story of the Samaritans, the good Samaritan, you're going to see that this is outrage. Yeah, like good demon-possessed man, good devil worshiper. What are you talking about? He says, verse 29, here's the lawyer. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So here's what he's asking. Okay, this person, are they my neighbor? Okay, they're my neighbor. They deserve love. They're not my neighbor. They don't deserve love. This is my neighbor. I wanted to limit the number of people that should be recipients of my love. So Jesus answers his, story, his question with a story and then a question. Verse 30, you can picture the, picture the mountain path now as you read this verse. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Like they walked along that very path you just saw in that photo a moment ago. And fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So picture this moment. He's walking along that path down there, minding his own business, 18-mile hike down out of the mountains. These thieves, multiple guys jump him. They beat the snot out of him. They strip his body naked. He's a bloody, crumpled mess. Picture his body naked, bloody, crumpled on the side of that path. All alone. No one to help him. Jesus then says that three people come along that very same path to see that naked, crumpled, bloody body. Verse 31. The first guy shows up. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. Now the priest, by the way, were the closest to God. So of the, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, one of the tribes was Levi, and one sliver of the tribe of Levi were the priests. They were the ones who did the sacrifices. They offered the elements. They lit the candles. They did the worship. These were the most religious people. What did this religious guy do? Verse 31, And when he saw him, he saw that naked, crumpled, bloody body on that path. He passed by on the other side. He got as far away as he could and kept going. Whew, went right by. Another guy shows up, a Levite. Likewise, a Levite. Now, who are the Levites? 
They were also from the tribe of Levi, like the priest, but they were the servants. They weren't born in the priestly families, so they were simply servants of the priest. But they were also supposed to be holy. They were around the temple helping people. What did the Levite do? He rubbernecked. As he journeyed, came where he was. I'm sorry, he came. When he arrived at the place, he came and looked. He rubbernecked and passed by on the other side. It's like when you're driving down the road. Why are we all slowing down? And then all of a sudden you see there's a car on the side. Everybody's slowing down to look. That's what he just did. He, He kind of looked at his body and saw the broken naked body. Went to the other side. Passed on. Now, we have no idea why these guys passed by. We could make up motives in our head. We can make up stories in our head. I made up a few. I wondered why these guys passed by. Maybe they thought it was hopeless. They thought, that guy's dead. I can't help him. Maybe they thought they were just too busy. I, I got to be in Jericho. By, I got an appointment. I cannot miss this time, this appointment. I don't have time. The worst story is this one. Maybe they just didn't care about people. I don't care about him. Stinks to be you. I don't care. Not my problem. Probably the best possible story is they were just terrified. They're afraid. Are the thieves still around here? Is this going to happen to us? Is this a trap? Is this guy trapping us? We have no idea. That's the nature of stories. When we make up people's motives, we're often totally wrong. And you find out when you actually ask them what their motives are versus making up stories and forcing your motive on them. So back in 1973, I'm going to go back to Princeton University. There was an experiment done called the Good Samaritan Experiment. And so uh, Princeton has a, has a seminary, a theology, where they have these ministry students studying for ministry. And they brought them on campus on one side of the Princeton campus since 1973. They told them, you have to give a religious talk on the other side of campus. Half of them were given the Good Samaritan to teach. Like literally, they're about to teach the Good Samaritan. The other half were given something else. They're trying to figure out, these researchers, what causes people to stop and help people And what causes people to blow right by? And so what they found was, it didn't matter whether you're teaching the Good Samaritan or not. What mattered the most is how busy you thought you were. So they set up this guy. He's in the doorway. He's crumpled. He's beaten up. He's on the path. These seminary students are crossing the campus. And he's moaning and groaning. And to those people, the seminary students, they told, hey, these ministry students, hey, you got plenty of time. Just make it across campus. Just, you're, you're fine. Of the ones that thought they had time, 63% of people paused, backed up the truck, and, hey, are you okay? 63%, two, about uh, two-thirds. Seriously? A third of ministry students, half of which are going to teach the Good Samaritan, didn't stop. But at least 63%, two-thirds did. But when they told them this, Dude, you have no time. You're going to be late. 10% of ministry students, half of which are on the way, they're late teaching the Good Samaritan. Only one out of 10 people paused and were late for their appointment to do that. I wonder, I wonder if we're often thinking we're so scheduled, so time-oriented, so busy, that we just feel like we don't have time. And we blow right by. Like, why do you blow by somebody in, the, in your school? You see they're crying, they're hurting. But you blow right by. Why do you do that? In the office, their countenance looks different. Why do you blow right by? In the grocery store, they look like they're distraught. Why do you blow by? When you see your neighbor, they don't look right. Why do you blow by? 
in the car. Why do you blow by? I wonder if often we think, man, we're, we're, we are the Levite and the priest. We are the 90% of the seminary students thinking they don't have time. Anyway, back to the story. So Jesus brings this third person up now, verse 33. He says, but a certain Samaritan, and that was poison to this Jewish man's ears. As he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he, the Samaritan, had compassion. Man, I've been trying to think of how, how I can get you to feel the outrage this Jewish lawyer would have felt hearing the Samaritan was a potential hero. I wonder, who is your Samaritan? Who is your Samaritan? What is that group of people in this world? You can't stand them. You don't agree with what they believe. You don't like how they act. You can't stand that group of people. They are your Samaritans. What that Jewish man feel? Well, let's just play around. Maybe you're a staunch Republican. See, the Republican walked right by. And a guy had a hat. Make America great. I voted Trump. Rubbernecked. Walked right by. But the Democrat paused and had compassion. But the I voted for Hillary paused, had compassion. How's that feel? Well, let's flip it. Because you're a staunch Democrat. And you can't stand Trump supporters. You can't stand them. The Democrat walked right by. Somebody, I voted Hillary, rubbernecked, walked right by. But the Republican had compassion. But the person says, make America great again. Paused. How's that feel? They had compassion. Who is your Samaritan? But the good Raider fan had compassion. We know that's not possible. There is no such thing as a good Raider fan. How about this one? U.S. citizens walked right by, but the immigrant had compassion. The couples, two couples walked right by, but the homosexual had compassion. But the Christians walked right by, but the good Muslim had compassion. How's that feel? Him hearing the word Samaritan was like demon-possessed guy had compassion. It was outrage. He couldn't, even, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. So let's go back to our story. Here's our question. Do you ever love blank as yourself? Do you ever love blank as yourself, this group of people? When do you ever show love like the good Samaritan? Now, ask yourself, do you do any of these things ever? Look what it says in verse 34, 35. So the Samaritan went to him. And he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He got his hands dirty, helping this guy. And he set him on his own animal. Here, I'll walk. You take the keys to my car. You drive. I'll walk. And he brought him to an inn, a hotel. I know a hotel. I'll go check us in a room over there. And, and he took care of him. He spent all night being the nurse in that hotel room. On the next day, are you crazy? He spent all night in a hotel room with his broken stranger. This could have been a thief. Maybe this thief jumped somebody else and got the snot kicked out of him. Maybe he's an evil guy. Didn't matter. On the next day, spent all night with him. When he departed, he took out his wallet, took out two denarii, two days of wages. What do you make in a day? Double that. 
He handed that to the hotel. And he said this. Here's a blank check. Here's my credit card. Here's my debit card. Whatever more you need, just put it on my account. He says this. And whatever more you spend, take care of it. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Whatever it takes. When do you ever love your neighbor as yourself? When do you, this man had compassion. He moved. Others walked by. When do you have this moment where others walk by? You stop. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you allow interruptions? This man was interrupted on the way to an appointment in Jericho. When do you ever say, that appointment can wait. I'll be late or miss that. This is too important. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? When do you ever get your hands dirty with somebody? Helping them. It's kind of a mess. It's messy. When do you ever love your neighbor as yourself? When do you risk your life for somebody? You don't know if the thieves are there. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? When do you inconvenience yourself? Here, take my keys. Here's the key to my car. I'll walk. When do you love your neighbor as yourself? When do you give the extra time? A whole night. I mean, a whole day is shot loving your neighbor as yourself. When do you pull out the wallet and say, listen, I'll pay. I'll pay. A complete stranger. I'll pay. I'll pay. I'll pay. Whatever. When do you love your neighbor as yourself? When do you ever show a love that doesn't make sense? Jesus flips this lawyer's question. The lawyer was like, hey, who do I exclude from my love? Who is my neighbor? Jesus flips the script and says, no, the three guys that walk by, the deliverers of love, which guy was the neighbor? Look what he says in verse 36. Jesus ends, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And this guy can't even say the word Trump. He can't even say Hillary. It's poison in his mouth. So he just uses the word he. Can't say Samaritan. And he said, he. He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. It didn't matter to Jesus if this guy had never done this in his life. Jesus didn't bring up his past. He didn't beat him up over not doing it before. What did he do? Past is the past. History's history. I don't care. It can't change it. It's gone. Right now is what matters. Go. Do likewise. So just yesterday, you know God has a sense of humor. I'm leaving the Overland Park campus. Nobody's around. It's just it's a couple cars. I'm the last one of the last couple people to leave. And two guys are in the field doing this in our field. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I'm hangry. And I pull, I pull out and I, I pause and I do this with my wheel. I went, Because oh. I'm about to turn into a seminary student here. And I, I pause. I said, hey, what you guys up to? Well, we lost something. Need some help? Yeah. Ah. So I turned off the car. I went, and literally, the three of us are walking through the field. I'm saying, where did you walk? Where'd this thing go? Well, kind of over here. And we found it. The guy found it. 
But I thought, man, that's totally a sense of humor. I know the feeling. I was challenged right then because it's an interruption and an inconvenience and you're tired. You may have never done the Good Samaritan. And right now you're like, I'm feeling two inches tall. Who cares? What would Jesus say right now if he's right here? He didn't bring up what the, in the past what this lawyer ever did in his life. Frankly, he didn't care. It didn't matter. What mattered now is to go and do likewise. Past is the past. Who cares? It's gone. It's history. Can't change it. Stop fretting about it. Go and do likewise. Don't you realize that this week, maybe today, when you see something, it's time for you to break, put, push the brakes, back up the truck. Hey, how you, how you doing? Others just passing by. Who cares? You love in a way that doesn't make sense. You love your neighbor as yourself. You don't beat yourself up. You do it. I would say this whole story, the Good Samaritan, is our story. Theologically, doctrinally, it's our story. Think about this. We are the half-dead guy on the side of the road. That's who we are. Spiritually. The Bible says half-dead. Why does he say half-dead? Well, it's just metaphorical. No, it's not. It's literally one half dead. Before you meet Jesus, you are one half dead. Your body is alive. You're half alive. Your spirit is dead. You're half dead. You are literally one half dead before you meet Jesus. And we were the guys that sinned. The thieves jumped us, stripped us, beat us up, left us alone, can't help ourselves. And religion goes right by, doesn't help us. Good works, rubbernecks. Yeah, too bad for you. Goes right by. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who had compassion. He came to us. We didn't go to him. He lifted us up. His hands got dirty healing us. He put us in a place of his own. He said, I'll pay and I'll pay in the future. I'll pay in the future. I'll pay in the future. Isn't it awesome that we are the recipients of the love of Jesus who was the good Samaritan for us, the half-dead people? And if you're a person here who has never yet receive Jesus, you're half dead. You're the guy on the side of the road too. Like on the outside, your shell is alive. Your body's alive. Your spirit is dead until the moment you surrender to Jesus, give your life to him. Go and do likewise if you're a follower of Jesus. Receive Jesus if you have it because you're half dead. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray for everybody, every follower of yours who um, has made that commitment to receive you as Savior. No matter what they've done in their past, maybe they've done the Good Samaritan every day of their life. Maybe they've been terrible at it, really never loved their neighbor as themselves. It doesn't matter. May they just live in the grace and second chances of forgiveness and see and talk to themselves like you would. The past is gone in this lawyer's story. He didn't even bring it up. He just brings up today the need to go. Do like that. Do likewise. Help every one of us have our radar up when you want us to go and do likewise with those around us. And I pray for those who are half dead. They are exploring faith. They're trying to, God has not made sense and the cross has not made sense of them. But now, Jesus makes more sense to them. God's love for them makes more sense. Sin, what it did to them makes more sense. And they're ready. So I pray right now they would pray to you and they'd surrender to Jesus, give their life to you, Jesus. I pray right now people everywhere, if they've not received Christ, would surrender to you, pray to receive you, give their life to you.
pray this, Jesus, you would continue to do this incredible work in us and through us. In your name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have questions or would like to contact us for prayer, please email us at info at visitgracechurch.com. For more information about our ministries, location, and service times, go to visitgracechurch.com.